and welcome to another Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast, which brings you the voices of next-generation environmental health leaders. This podcast is brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Pinkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and Editor of Agents of Change. We hope you're all getting ready for what will be the strangest of holidays and staying safe and healthy as possible. It's somewhat surreal to see 2020 end, but the whole Agents of Change team is wishing you all a happy holiday season and hopefully a much better year in 2021. We also hope you are enjoying the podcast. Perhaps it's a bit of a bright spot in these difficult times. We're having a blast speaking to early career researchers about their lives, work, and vision to make life healthier and more just. If this is your first time here, please check out the first few episodes. You can find us at Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. This week, I'm excited to talk to Michelle Jin, the Toxic Free Kids Communications Planner in the Environmental Health Division at the Minnesota Department of Health. Michelle is my first guest from the current cohort of Agents of Change and has a really unique role with the state of Minnesota. She works to get toxics out of consumer products with a focus on disadvantaged communities. Her story is compelling, and we talk about being a first-generation college graduate, what it's like working with businesses while also holding them accountable, and strategies for communicating environmental risk to different populations. Enjoy. All right. I'm super happy to be joined by Michelle Jin now. Michelle, how are you? Doing well. 2020 is a crazy year, so <laughs> do it the best you can. <laughs> yes, that is uh that's about the same answer I keep getting on these. So um yeah, you're you're in the same boat as most of us. Uh so Michelle, you're you're our first guest here with our new group of fellows. So I'm super excited to talk to you. And you have a little different role. You're coming from uh, a state government sector, which is uh, super cool for us. We're glad to um, to have people outside of academia, and that's really exciting. But I wanted to start um, with your essay that you provided to us to, to get started. You talked about how your family's originally from Hong Kong, and you're a first-generation college graduate. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that milestone meant to you and your family. Absolutely. Uh, when I think about that time, when I was that high school student going to college, it didn't quite phase me. Like I didn't see the significance as much because, you know, you're a teenager, you're probably just focused on like what's going on in my life. And my peers, they were all applying to universities as well. So it felt normal for me. Uh, where it really felt started to feel different was when I realized my friend's parents, they were able to guide them through that process. Um, it was just my mom and I, and she wasn't able to. I mean, she did the best she could. We visited a couple schools. She'd look through the brochures with me. Um, but I didn't really get that same level of support um, that a number of my friends had, and nor did I realize that lack of support until later on. Because um, you only know what you know. Um, it was really um, my f- first week on campus was actually the week before school started. And that um, was because I was brought over, um, brought in by the Iowa Edge program at the University of Iowa. And it was a program designed for first-generation students. And I am so glad they host that program because they recognized that there was a disadvantage, um, didn't un- understand how to access resources, how to access academic resources, financial resources. And they 
truly made a difference um, in my ability to succeed in my four-year college program. Um, and I mean, I, I finished my degree. It was fantastic, international studies and global health. And it was some years later that I went in for grad school and I felt pretty prepared. I'm like, okay, I have my bachelor's. I, I, I didn't know how to do this. Um, and it was at the end of my two years, my master's program, public health, where I realized again, I had this disadvantage and it didn't feel great. I realized at the end that there were so many things that if I had known before I would have done differently. Um, I loved my experience. I wouldn't change that. Um, but I realized how I could have um, maximized more of my education and maximized more of the financial side of things. Um, and again, I think that came from not having a family member in my life to really share their um, experience. I know for my mom, she was incredibly proud um, of these achievements. Um, she was there at graduation both times, waiting the long <laughs> list of names for my name to get called just to walk across the stage. Um, and it meant a lot. She would tell me how my grandma in Hong Kong, she would be working constantly, saving every, every bit of money for the future. She worked in a laundry shop smaller than most people's bathrooms here in the United States um, just to get by and on her commute home to, um, to and from work. Her, yeah, commute to work. Um, she was also working. She'd be mending people's clothes on the bus. Um, my mom would always talk about how life was always working. And same for my own mom. She earned her associate's degree while I was in high school because um, she saw the value of education and she always told me, this is one of the most important things. Always push forward and do not let anything stand your way. And she always found a way to help support me um, through school and also through the finances of school. Well, wow, that's that's a really great story. And, and I, just, I do think it highlights uh, how vastly different the experience is for people um, going to college. For, for a lot of people in the U.S., it's just the next step, right? It's it's for a lot of privileged um, students, it's just the next step, not thinking about how it can be uh, a real challenge uh, for some people if you don't have the kind of the support system. So getting from kind of your master's in, was it public health, your master's? Yes. In? Yeah, I was master's in public health, um, focused on maternal and child health, health policy, and health disparities. So from there to your position now, uh, tell me about that journey. Oh, it's a long, long journey is never a straight path, which is how I prefer it. Um, before I went in, even for my master's in public health, I actually thought I was going to become a science teacher. I love the environment. Um, thought I loved science more, but I realized I liked people more. <laughs> um, and it was while I was doing some research in Costa Rica that I realized like, oh, this isn't for me. And I took a few years off to really explore um, things I worked in nonprofit. I worked in academia. And it was through those experiences, like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed them, but I realized my true calling was in public health. And that's when I went in to get my degree. And coming out of that, I had already been thinking about, where am I going to go with this? How can I make the greatest impact? I, at first, when I started school, I thought I was going to be going back into the nonprofits because I love community work. You get to see the people you're impacting every day. You get to see a youth um, go through school and then decide um, if they're going go to go um, to technical school or go to a university and support their dreams. 
Um, you can see changes in health. Um, you can see so many things. And I love that. But what kept me, um, kept bothering me, not bothering me, like I wanted to make a greater impact. And I was thinking, how can I do that? And it came down to policy. To me, I see that policies shape systems. Those systems impact more people. Um, like that was the way how I thought I could make a difference. And I'm like, how can I make bigger policy change? And that's when I decided that I think government would be a route to go. I had heard the horror stories of how slow government can work. And I was ready for that challenge. And I will agree, like government does go slow. And there are reasons for that. You can't have policy change every year. That's going to be challenging for um, the end user um, of that. And so that's how I decided to go into government and eventually found a wonderful fit in my current role where I get to work on toxic free kids, the toxic free kids program, looking at toxic chemicals and consumer products. Um, it's a blend of trying to promote safer human health as well as environmental health. Um, since the environment and people are things I'm very passionate about and just blended them together. Um, and in this role, I get to um, work on policy change. We get to make suggestions on how do we change laws that are going to protect um, people and their health. And that is just really exciting. And it's not as community focused as it used to be. I mean, my roles used to be. However, I also have been lucky that I've had the freedom to really shape my role. And I have supportive um, leadership who they trust my judgment. How do I do this best? And so I do still get to integrate the community. Um, it's to involve um, a university professor. I got to work with her entire class and for a semester we looked at skin lightening products in the Hmong community and looked at targeted uh, health communications that would be most effective um, because your health communications are really going to vary, vary depending on your audience. Um, I also get to work with our local businesses and what are they doing? Um, and those are some things that I didn't know if I could integrate in with the government job and I've been able to. It's been wonderful. It sounds like a really progressive state program when it comes to uh, tackling toxics. And, and I want to hear more about it. But before we move on from kind of your path to getting there, I wanted to ask a big, broad question of uh, what is one defining moment that shaped your identity? Oh, that is a good question. I need a moment for that. Sure. And while you're thinking, I will say, as uh, somebody who's been a journalist for many years, when someone says something's a good question, that usually means they really want to answer it or they really don't want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> it means I wish I had known that question in advance and could prepare you better. Answer. I think a defining moment for me has been having the opportunity to live and travel abroad. Um, so it's not one specific moment, um, but I can identify that there's an organization called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And I have been with their organization since 2010. So it's been a decade of my life. And their work is a blend of advocacy, global citizenship, 
policy change and health and the environment. And these are all things that I am passionate about. And I kind of fell into this organization by chance. Um, and it's become a part of who I am. It's a part of my identity. Um, and that work has taken me around the U.S., around the world, um, to really build strong relationships so that that collaboration, I think, is so critical. Um, like, I work in, like, people often work in silos. And through this experience, we purposely are trying to build relationships with young health professionals across borders. So as we grow into positions of leadership, we can say, I have trusted contacts in X, Y, or Z country, and we're going to keep working on these larger issues because it's greater than ourselves. And that, I think, is a, um, that would be a defining time. That experience I had, um, specifically in 2012 with this organization, I met so many like-minded individuals who truly saw themselves as global citizens um, working so hard for human environmental health. Um, and they became my family and some of that work truly has shaped where I continue to go today. Awesome. And what was the name of the organization again? International Physicians uh, for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Great. Awesome. Well, I hope, I hope listeners check that out. I, that's the first I've heard of it unless it was in passing in a news article. So very cool. Yeah. Um, Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. I should, I'll have to edit that out where I say I haven't heard of them. That's, that's embarrassing. Uh, Very cool work. And so, so back to where you're at now in your, in your role and in, in looking to reduce toxics in consumer products. And, uh, you know, when we talk about reducing toxics, this is kind of near and dear to EHN's part. You know, I've written about this for years and, and you know, we're all exposed to a variety of different air pollution, pesticides, endocrine disruptors. In your work, you've looked to shine a light on uh, potentially harmful products used also in specific to lower socioeconomic populations. And you mentioned uh, the Hmong population. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what type of exposures we're talking about here, other examples, and how you're working to combat it. Sure. I, can, I think there's two examples that come to my mind. Um, one that's very broad, and that is um, some a project our team did last year. So when I say that the team, it's uh, called the Chemicals and Products Interagency Team. It's a collaborative between the Minnesota Department of Health, Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, Minnesota Department of Commerce, so three state agencies. And we all bring our respective strengths uh, to the table and leverage our resources because, you know, government has limited resources and we have to be creative on how do we do what's best um, and make the most impact. Um, So in our group, we do consumer product testing, um, looking for specific chemicals um, where we have policies on them here in Minnesota. So we were looking at lead and cadmium, which are heavy metals. um, And we were looking at them in these spitting battle toys. Um, Not sure if you're familiar with what those are. Sometimes they're known as Beyblades, which is a brand name. Um, If you have children in your life, you've probably maybe seen these little toys. that They look like spinning tops. And you spin them and they hit one another. So it's a battle between these toys. And um, we had purchased a number of those toys um, online as well as in person in brick and mortar stores. 
and we purchased products that were um, like the official products from Takara Tomi as well as from Hasbro. And we also purchased a number of products that were less expensive and were the off-brand versions of these Spitting Battle toys. Um, so we tested 50 of these toys um, and we were looking at the different pieces of them. So we were looking at the paint or the metal parts um, that may flake um, dust, um, which could contain the lead and cadmium, which is toxic to children. Um, and when through this testing, we found that the name brand Spinning Battle Toys did not show concerning levels for lead or cadmium. But those that did contain the lead and cadmium were those off-brand um, Spinning Battle Toys. And that right there. Your, those off-brand toys, who's more likely to buy them? Someone who might not be as financially secure. Um, and that is something that we've seen in other products that we've done testing on is where there's less regulation or it is your lower socioeconomic group is more likely to purchase things. There might be more um, exposure to chemicals. And that's something that our group is working on and trying to identify that because when you go to purchase a product, you shouldn't have to be thinking, is this going to be toxic to my health or my child's health? Um, so that's um, one case where we've uh, looked at um, trying to combat exposures uh, to toxic chemicals. Another one is um, the work of skin lightening products. So this is the work that I'd mentioned earlier, how it's not just within the Hmong community. Skin lightening products is an issue that impacts all people of color all around the world. This isn't a Minnesota issue, a U.S. issue. This is a world issue. Skin lightening products back in 2013 were a $10 billion industry, and they just continue to grow. Um, so skin lightening products, um, if they are showing some kind of sign of effectiveness, it's probably because they have a chemical and agent in there that isn't good for you. And often it is mercury. Sometimes it's hydroquinone or sometimes it's steroids, or it could be a combination of those three things. And in Minnesota, we have been coming across this issue for a number of years and have been working on trying to educate um, people um, who might be users of it, um, vendors who might be selling it, because uh, if we can get it out of the uh, supply chain, that means there's less access. And we also, for this issue, we realize it's not just a supply and demand issue of these products that have toxic chemicals in it. We realize this is an issue that goes much deeper. This is colorism. This goes back to Eurocentric beauty ideals. This goes back to the days of colonization where Europeans would go to places we know today as Asia, Africa, the Americas, and view people as inferior um, and to a strategy that was used by colonizers was to divide people. And how do you do that? You put them against one another. So if you were someone who maybe if you looked more like a colonizer, sounded more like a colonizer, spoke more like them, life would be just a little bit easier for you. And that is some of those, that's the rooted history where you might have, I might have family member telling me, oh, you want more fair skin. And where does that idea come from? It comes from them being told by their elders that this will make life easier for you. We know this exists today. Racism exists today. And this colorism is part of this. Um, 
So that is an issue that um, I'm honored that our health department is spending the time and effort working on it. There are other states across the country um, who we team up with, California, New York. Um, it's still a relatively new issue. It's not very well known. Just because mercury, for example, you can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it in a product. The consumer, how would they ever know it's in there? It's not like it's labeled on the product. And if it is for some reason labeled on it, it can also take on multiple names than just the word mercury. Um, so this is some work that we've been doing to really educate um, people how it's harmful for their health and their family's health because mercury vapors, they will go into the air. So if I had a jar of a product and had mercury in it, I open it, that goes into the air of my home. If I live in a multi-generational home, that's impacting the grandparents, the grandchildren, everyone there. Um, and that's really just one way that people can be exposed to mercury. Um, it's inhalation, dermal absorption, um, and ingestion. And so there's still other ways that's getting into people and Oh, I could just talk a lot about this. Um, so I hope I, I think I answered the main question there. Um, oh, for sure. And on the second issue of skin lightening, I, I don't think it's very well known. And I'm wondering how you and your colleagues go about not only tackling the immediate issue of stopping these harmful exposures, but of addressing some of the deep-rooted racist underpinnings. Absolutely. Um, it is a multi-pronged approach. I don't think you can talk about skin lightening products without you know, touching an uncomfortable subject. We talk about colorism. Every single time we give a presentation and talk about it, we open up with, let's look at the history of this. Why do people want to do this? Because um, when we first started talking about this, sometimes I'd get those comments of, oh, isn't it funny? You know, people who identify as white, they want to get tan and vice versa. It's just always grass is green on the, green on the other side. And that is not true. Colorism is a privilege as the um, pr uh, pri um, prioritizes lighter skin over dark. We know that. And it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, people need to get a little uncomfortable with it. People need to know where is this coming from? How does it impact um, the others around them? So we always open up our education with acknowledging that. Um, but we also talk about the health side of things. It really depends on who our audience is. Um, for businesses, I can think about they want, we, when we do education with them, because they might not know that this was a problem just to begin with. So we talk about one that, first, the products are actually banned in the U.S. <laughs> in Minnesota. So there's that issue. Two, if those products are still around and they're, and they're selling them, they're selling to their community and they're like, oh, I don't want to sell a toxic product to my community members. This is my family. And that is a way that we share that message. And then we also share, of course, the message about it's important to love your skin so that we don't have this demand that's causing a supply. We talk about how this is related to colorism. So all these messages, one of them or more, one or more of them will generally resonate with a person. And that's where we are able to say, see behavior changes or policy changes. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, so it's always a multi-pronged approach. Um, Minnesota really takes the attitude of education first. Um, we're not looking to try to get people in trouble for, for this. And you mentioned working with business as one of the, one of the prongs, uh, one of the approaches that you would use. And I think that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting 
viewpoint that you can bring that maybe an academic or someone from the nonprofit world couldn't. And, and I think a lot of people in the environmental health space automatically think of legislative fixes when it comes to things like toxics and pollution. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about working with businesses to reduce harmful products and how this coupled with the power of the consumer could maybe be more powerful than always turning to regulation. Absolutely. Well, first, I think it's it's a combination of both. <laughs> um Legislation is important because it's something that you can always reference um, when talking to community. Um, but also with legislation, you need to have something that passes that has enforcement with it, actually has a bite to it. Um, so that's important. So whenever policymakers are writing something up, that can sometimes be a missing part of it. Um, so on the side where I'm coming from, if I don't have anything to work with, I can't do any kind of enforcement so what does that do? Um, so that's important. But the other side then is working with businesses. And I'd really like to uplift um, a business that we work with quite a bit. They're called the Monktown Marketplace um, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And their um, manager, Jamie, is a close friend of mine. And we have grown our relationship over a number of years because though we are government and business, which usually has this idea of like, oh, they <laughs> they don't like each other because the government's trying to regulate the business. But that's not the relationship that Minnesota tries to take with um, businesses we work with. Um, we look to do education and transparency and having resources available, being open for questions. And that a question doesn't mean... Um, their business is something bad. They're just trying to ask a clarifying question. We, they're not going to get in trouble for it. Um, so Mongtown Marketplace, number of years um, ago, they uh, realized they were selling these products that they shouldn't have been. And their um, vendors, instead of having a fine, were given the opportunity to go through an education program um, so that they could understand what are these things? Why are they bad? Why they shouldn't sell them anymore? And, Jamie then over the time worked with our um, local hazardous waste folks um, to get a container set up there to actually dispose of them. So it was like no questions. And that's a big deal because for these vendors, they spent a lot of money on these products and this is something that they're giving up, but they gave it up because of understanding this is for their community's health. Um, and Jamie over the time too will, um, he's someone I go to, like, actually just right before this interview, I we were on a phone call and we were talking about um, ways to promote businesses during this time of COVID and looking for a good infographic type thing um, to promote takeout. Because um, that's a way to support our local businesses during this time when people are staying home. And Monktown Marketplace has delicious food. <laughs> um and Jamie also, through this experience, um, realizing that wanting to protect the community from exposures to mercury from these skin lightening products, took it upon himself to integrate into their vendor leases that these are harmful products and that this is not allowed to be sold in their marketplace. So all their vendors actually have to sign this document to be able to be a vendor at the marketplace. And that's really exciting. Um, and this um, like we're able to lean on each other to ask questions like how should the writing be like what are examples um, always getting materials translated materials to them um, so Jamie has a very open relationship with myself and others in 
different levels of government because they realize that we are a helpful resource um, and they are able to get ahead of things um, by having an open door and I can share things with them. If I'm working on some communications, I can just go over and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Because he has a different eye than I might have. Uh, For example, I think there was a number of years ago, I was working on a piece and trying to find a visual that showed the value of education and how mercury has neurotoxins that could harm a child's brain, which then could impact their education. And Jamie looked at the thing and was like, this doesn't make sense um, because I had used this owl. Because to me, an education meant, oh, I grew up with like like PBS programming, for example. And like I saw it and I was just, that was natural for me. Like, this makes no sense. And he had an eye for someone who didn't grow up with that. And we changed the symbol to be, I think it was, I think it was a stack of books um, was our end result. But that collaboration is something that I see um, beneficial for both of us. Um, We've both benefited from it. um, And their business is one that we highlight um, to others of, here's an example of they had a need, they wanted to get a box to securely collect these toxic hazardous products. um, And this is what they did. And they are a resource to other community groups um, at this point now because of their experience. That's awesome. It's really great to hear. And you you know, you have a different perspective than a lot of our academics because, you know, communication and outreach is kind of built into your job. So so you're probably doing it more so than somebody who's kind of conducting research to publish in a very, you know, esoteric journal. But, you know, Agents of Change, this podcast, this is all designed to really uh, to be putting science communication out there to a broadest audience as possible. And I'm wondering kind of why you feel that's important, I'm assuming you do, you're here, and kind of what role you see for, for both, uh, you know, written essays and, but also social media for people in the scientific community, people in government, or, you know, environmental advocates. Absolutely. I mean, science communication is crucial. Um, science is complex. It has a lot of qualifiers. It is not always easy to read. I mean, if I were to try to read scientific paper, I probably would still struggle with it at times. And it's my job to try to translate that into something that is digestible. Um, So a strategy that I think myself and many other health communicators use is called the bite snack meal. If you're familiar with that, it's where that bite is that little something to get um, your audience member interested. For example, it could be social media where I post an image of a commonly like a common skin lining product that I know is in the community and say, did you know this is bad for your health? That's just like that little, that little interest point. Then the bite is getting that person to want to maybe click on the link where they're led to some more resources that talk about what is mercury? What are the exposure pathways into my body and why is it bad? How do I safely dispose of this? Because it's not safe to dispose in the trash. Um, and the meal then is eventually getting people to maybe want to be interested in going to an event or downloading our community report where we did a study working with pregnant women and their exposure to mercury and other um, chemicals. 
And so that's, that's one form of health communications. I feel like that we do um, science communication and it's so important. I also think that humor goes a long way. Um, everyone likes to laugh, laughing. And that's a universal thing around the world. Um, I have a colleague, she's hilarious and she's a fantastic science communicator. And you can see how if you are a good presenter and can really connect with your audience and get that laugh, it really goes a long way. Um, and the other important things, it's not just for the laugh, though. It's for under, people to understand something. It's for people to find value in this work. If people didn't value the work of science, how do we get funding for things? How do policy get changed? Um, so I also see it as my job to try to empower people with knowledge so that they can also make the change. Um, consumer purchasing power is something that I'm very interested in because I think about these consumer products I work on getting changes to ban a product, for example, or to a chemical. That's a very extensive process. Um, but the voice of the people that will change businesses far faster. Think about BPA in plastic bottles. At one point, no one knew what that was. Picked up steam through good, consistent messaging that this is something harmful. And now on all your BPA-free, BPA-free. Um, I'm starting to see in the last few years more things like BPS-free because similar chemicals are also similarly harmful. Um, and it's interesting that once you can get that good message across and you can motivate lots of the consumers and people to say, no, I don't want a product that has this, businesses will change far faster than if they receive notice that um, – Government's telling them, like, you can't use this particular chemical anymore and you must report it if you do um, in certain products. Um, so I think that um, is the power of science communication. You can really motivate change um, and that change can be so much stronger um, than other methods. So now the final question, and I really appreciate all your time today, is what is the last book you read for fun? Oh, my gosh. It's on my stairs right around the corner. I can't remember the title of it. My husband is reaching down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> the, no? A time for truth. What was it? A Time for Truth. A Time for Truth. Uh, it's short stories um, in Minnesota highlighting racism and challenges. <laughs> that's, that's how I spend my free time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a time for truth, it's called? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Time. Hold on. Sure. <laughs> this. I'm dreadful at remembering the names of books. Um, a Good Time for Truth, Race in Minnesota. Excellent. And is it, I assume it's a, a local author there? Um, yeah, it's compiled stories. Um, it's, it has a number of compiled stories um, from Minnesotans. It's a great read. Um, simple, very powerful. Um, and it's, I think it was also, it hit home because it's from Minnesota. I can recognize the places that these people are um, talking about. 
Excellent. Well, Michelle, this has been a whole lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you. It's been my honor to be with you. I'm so excited for the Agents of Change Fellowship Program and excited to see and read what my colleagues have to say. And there you have it. What cool work Michelle is doing there in Minnesota. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. It's worth noting some of the direct impact of the work. On those spinning battle toys she mentioned, their project identified a number of toxic products. Shell and her team reached out to the sellers, and the result was 2,376 toxic products recalled. Specific items were removed from online listings, and more than $27,330 was refunded to consumers. Perhaps most importantly, children are not being exposed to heavy metals like lead and cadmium. Such important work. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change at Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Dana Williamson, currently an environmental health fellow at the U.S. EPA Office of Science Advisor, Policy, and Engagement. From all of us here at Agents of Change, have a safe, happy, healthy, and hopefully relaxing holiday season.